lesson today, good question, does the gospel of Jesus Christ change anything in your day-to-day life? Does the gospel matter when it comes to your schedule, your budget, your relationships, your plans, your hopes, your dreams? I don't mean do we somehow have a knowledge of the gospel, a knowledge that Jesus Christ is God's son, come to seek and save the lost, that he died on the cross, he rose again, and he will return. That's, that's true, but I mean, does that knowledge actually change anything about your day-to-day life? This morning, as we enter the other half of Paul's letter, Philemon, I want you to see a big truth, and it's that the gospel is practical, that it does matter in everyday life, your everyday life and mine, your work, your worries, your children, your parents, your dreams, your arguments, your desires. The gospel has something to say and a hope to give in each of those situations in each of those relationships. Now, it's easy for us to say that the gospel should change lives, and that's the right answer, by the way. It it should. But what examples do we have of it actually doing so from the Bible? Or asked another way, if we understand from God's word that the gospel changes someone fundamentally, that it gives them a, a different foundation on which to, to build their life upon. If that's true, then what does that change look like? And what does it look like not in the passive seven seminary theoretical sense? What does it look like in real life, in the everyday sense of your life and mine? Paul's going to give example of exactly that in the second half of this little letter. Ultimately, this letter is going to show us how the gospel changes people, relationships, maybe even society. And it's going to do so in ways that matter, not only for for a day or for a news cycle, but for eternity. Let's do that today. Turn to Philemon pick up the story again in verse 8. Philemon, verse 8. I should make a little note that uh, I'm going to call him Philemon today. (laughs) I've realized about every time I say his name, I say it a little bit different. I even listened to a native Greek speaker this last week if I'm getting it wrong. It's lodged in my head as Philemon. So you can say it differently if you want. I know who we're talking about here. Verse 8. We start with a request. Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. 
I appeal to you for my child's permission. His father I detained in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you in Daniel's old age. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own this point in this letter, uh, Paul has spoken quite highly of Philemon, hasn't he? Uh, he is counted not only as a, as a brother in Christ in the, in a, in a broad sense, but also uh, Paul gave specific examples of Philemon's usefulness to the Lord and the lives of the people there in Colossae, and also in Paul's own life, uh, how he had been refreshed at God's using Philemon in so many different ways. And so one reason that Paul began this letter the way that he did was to encourage Philemon and those around him. That was one of his purposes. He wanted to bring encouragement. And I want to say that I think we need a little of that as Christians these days. Perhaps we worry that if we encourage too much, we're going to we're going to give people a big head. You know, we're going to make them prideful. I had a, uh, still have, uh, but I have a friend uh, that I've known all the way back from high school. And he was one of those guys who was just good at anything that he put his hand to. You know, sports, computers, uh, you know, now he's a PhD physicist. Working for a national laboratory, now he's doing his own thing with patents in his name. I mean, this is just the, 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 the upper crust of someone in his field. And so, you know, the, the rest of us lowly mortal humans decided that we had a God-given job for our friend, and that was to keep him humble. Right? So, so all the time we were finding ways just to, to bring him down because we didn't want him to be prideful and... You know, it was funny back in high school and in college, but is that really how we think? And sometimes I think we believe that is our job. I once heard a, a famous pastor, I'll leave the name off for now, uh, talking about how he received a letter from someone anonymously in his congregation, and it had all these criticisms of his pastoral ministry. And at the very end, it was, well, I've been appointed by God to keep you humble, just like Paul and his thorn, signed the thorn. Right? Isn't that great? We've got people to keep everyone humble. You know what? <laughs> as much as I think that seems practical to us, that's not actually what the Scriptures It's not a spiritual gift of humbling other people. No, that's, that's ultimately the Holy Spirit's job. Instead, our job is, well, what do the scriptures say? To, to stir one another up toward love and good works. To build up one another. 
Jesus' name, we'll know that you are Christians by your love, not by your making sure everyone around you is taking your other opinions seriously. And my point is not at all to uh, cast aside humility. In fact, I think that it's probably something that's just as much of a struggle for us to but rather, it's say, let's focus on the role that God has given to us, the role of encouragement, the role that Paul, right here in this letter, has already shown us. Simple application before we move on. Look for ways to encourage one another. Look for ways to encourage one another. Give yourself grace in this I got an email this week um, from someone not in our congregation, but someone who I, I know well, a Christian brother, and was just asking how I was doing. And, and at the very end, he signed it, um, your brother and friend. And I'm like, most people just put a name, or you know, if they want to be a little more spiritual, you know, in Christ. But and this is someone who I've, I've known for a while, but I don't know him terribly personally, and yet he really wanted to be encouraged, his friend. And it could be something really simple like that, all the way up to, hey, maybe you show up on the door with some some Thanksgiving treats, I don't know. Just name something that fits who you are and who you're trying to serve. And go out a little bit on a limb this week. See how the Lord would use us to encourage one another. Paul began his letter, he also has a reason for putting that encouragement at the front. Part of the reason that Paul recounts how the Lord has used Philemon is because he's expecting him to rise to the occasion in yet another area of life. As if to say, well, you know, Philemon, it's been amazing watching you follow the Lord. He's used you in all kinds of of astounding ways, and so it's going to be even more amazing to see how he uses me with this new pastor. And what is that encounter? Uh, Through a series of events that are not recorded, Onesimus, a slave of Philemon, has ended up somehow in Paul's presence, Perhaps Onesimus escaped or or, or ran away. Maybe Paul's now trying to intervene and get Onesimus to be freed from his enslavement. Uh, Perhaps Philemon sent Onesimus to Paul in the first place and kind of gave him some orders. Hey, you're going to go to Paul. You're going to be my my emissary to help out the Apostle Paul while he's in maintaining the church. And now that Paul's learned the story, maybe he feels the need to try and change the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Now, we could speculate all day long. Those are just the tip of the iceberg. Ultimately, though, we need to let God be God. He has not recorded all those other details in the Word for us. Apparently, um, as, as much as we like to know other details, they're not actually important to the point we need Somehow, Paul has become a brother in Christ, both to Philemon and to Onesimus. And in one way or another, Onesimus has ended up being helpful to Paul. Uh, I don't know if 
Bible might have a footnote there that uh, although Clay and his name talking about how apparently he was not very helpful, he was useless, now he is useful. And now Paul is applying the teachings of Jesus to this situation and to masters of the synagogue. Now I realize this would be a point where we could really get derailed in the story. So let me just make a couple brief comments so that we don't get derailed, and then we're going to move forward. Um, slavery in the New Testament has absolutely no relation to what you and I were taught of in 18th and 19th century American literature. There's almost no relation at all. Uh, to give you some ideas, in the Roman Empire, slaves became so normally of their own free will. They chose this sort of indentured servitude. Now, there were exceptions. Uh, the exceptions, however, were never racial and they weren't economic. Uh, the exception would have almost exclusively been if you were conquered in a war. Um, so most people are choosing this path. Uh, often as an apprenticeship, they're trying to rise in their station in life by becoming a, a slave to someone who is higher in station and in honor and in social weight than they were. Uh, their labor was owned, but not their person. Um, at that time, slaves could own other slaves. They could have significant property. They could have economic advantages and holdings. And, this is probably most important, slaves in the Roman Empire would be legally released after a certain period of time. This was not for life. It was not some indefinite whatever. You didn't have to, to buy your freedom in the way we might think of. Uh, there was no racial stigma attached to slavery in the Roman Empire. And I say all that, not to say any of this is good. It's not. But to say that if in your mind you're starting to draw parallels with our country, that you shouldn't. This is a very different situation. And that means we need to not Paul's letter is more about relationships than laws. Right? In, our, in our current social justice moment, I think our temptation is to come to a situation like the one we have here and immediately run to, hey, we need to change society. And why didn't Paul say more? And he should have said more. I don't know. So that, that's actually something of, of greater significance being insensitive, I would say even more significant is Paul wants to address. And it's not just the slaves, it's the power of the synagogue. That's powerful. So what does this look like? Well, Paul's goal is more about relationships than laws. The, the change that the gospel brings rather than the change of, of influencers or media, as important as those may be. So, did you catch how Paul worded his request to Philemon? He could have simply commanded Philemon to release them at once. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. He has a personal relationship with Philemon. He is, not that they had celebrities in the way we think of it, but if ever there was one, it was Paul. But that's not what he does. And I think that's really instructive for you and for me. 
It's instructive for how we speak and talk and look to, to influence one another. follows the tone of the gospel again and again and again. Right? Jesus waits at the door and knocks rather than barges in with a battering ram at the door. Right? So Paul is showing us that the way forward is generally not through demands for action, sternly worded orders, but through relationship. Even my friends in the military tell me in seminary, it doesn't work that way for us. Captain gives the orders, and the sergeant just does it. And yes, and there is a certain chain of command, but that chain of command breaks down with relationship, not action, not promise. Right? That's most of you have seen it in your working life as well. Right? There might be hierarchy at the workplace, but you know what? If the boss doesn't actually care about the employees, if, if he or she hasn't tried to, to relate well, everyone else, then there's a lot of friction between getting things done. So it is here with Paul. And he's wise to see this and to do this. And from him, we need to learn to seek to persuade, not just order, not just drown out, to persuade, to ask questions, to look to understand, to not just yell louder and draw attention, around and I hear a whole world yelling louder and louder about things and I notice there's less and less change on any sort of significant level. Not good. Not good at all. That's the first thing. Here's the second. I want you to notice that Paul's request for Philemon is unconditional. He does not write a letter and say, how dare you have a slave? This is terrible. This is wrong. Christ has set us free. Philemon, what are you doing? Instead, Paul seeks to winsomely show Philemon how this runaway slave has been changed and transformed. So much so that Paul would go home to give him a job. And yet, he wants that to be Philemon's decision. Paul doesn't try to coerce him, he doesn't try to force his hand, but instead he speaks of what God has done and of the opportunity in the present. He's appealing to Philemon's By not forcing Philemon to take a specific course of action, Paul is leaving room for the Holy Spirit to help. So rather than taking matters into his own hands, I'm just going to order this and you're going to do it, and instead Paul trusts the Lord to work in Philemon and in this letter so that the end result will be wonderful and glorified. It's true, yes, Paul's writing this letter. I'm not trying to minimize that. He's certainly not being passive. But his trust in the Lord and his knowledge of Philemon's character, all of those mean that he can write as a friend who's excited to see the Lord at work. Everyone is at a different place in their growth in the Lord. This is an opportunity, not just for omissions and freedom, but for Philemon to grow. Trust in the Lord and in his love for this fellow 
unhelpful place here to be. And it's just hard to short-circuit that. Yeah, Philemon might be free, or excuse me, Onesimus might be free, but Philemon will be bound. How brilliant is this, what Paul's doing here? And I think that brings a challenge for you and for me. Do we trust the Lord to this extent, even in very sticky situations like this? We live in a very imperfect world. We're reminded of that quite often, aren't we? Whether it's through the news or through politicians or media. Right? And so often the, the solutions that are given to us are all the, you know, the instant right now. We're just going to order it. We're going to make it happen. And you know what? I'm, I'm not that old, but in my lifetime I've seen that almost never work for anything good, for anything that affects all of humanity. Right? And yet those are the solutions we keep getting sold again and again and again. We as Christians are called to look not just for some quick fix, but instead to say, okay, Lord, what are you doing here? What does it look like for, for us to trust you here? For us to example Christ in, in this area of brokenness, in this relationship that's not all as it should be? How can we patiently decide to patiently to disciple others? How can we patiently love others? Yes, challengingly, but graciously welcoming any and anyone. Paul is showing us that our God can be trusted, that we should be ever hopeful about his work in other people. That should give us a, a godly kind of attitude. He is never done. God is not done with Paul. He's not done with Timothy. He's not done with any began with a letter. But the letter doesn't end there. Look at verse 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than that, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, as in the flesh, that Paul is hoping for. So much does Paul desire for Philemon and Onesimus to be reunited in a Christ-like way that, that there are two steps that Paul's going to take to help them. Uh, the first one is here in these verses. Paul urges Philemon to receive Onesimus with, with new eyes. it's not a stretch to say that Onesimus has become a Christian. And based on uh, how Paul is writing about him, we see that, that this Christian has had his entire life turned around. So whatever the specifics, I want you to notice how Paul commends Onesimus. Right? Philemon's been dreaded return. It's not, oh, we've had so many problems before. And, uh, what are we going to do? No. Brother. Don't 
miss the, the very practical point that Paul's making here. Whatever is going to happen legally between Philemon and Onesimus, whether Onesimus ends up released or still has to serve out his agreement, whatever's going on there, Paul wants to break down the social and cultural walls that separated these as if to say, okay, Philemon, whatever you do with legally, you need to treat this man as a brother in Christ now. So the relationship's going to change no matter what else you do. It's not Today, realizing is that that truth, that truth, is far more radical than you and I might imagine it to be. Right? Our, our world thinks in terms of isms, right? Racism being one of them. The Bible goes further. It speaks not simply of justice here and now, nor does it only care about bank accounts and elections and reparations. No, God cares about eternity. That's why we see that revelation picture of, uh, of every tribe and tongue and nation together worshiping our Lord with one voice. That's what we're after. We're not after, you know, separate but equal. We're not after our sort of equal wink-wink, nod-nod with our identity and our economic advantages that our world's talking about now. No, we're after unity with one another in Christ. A unity across racial and economic, age, gender, country of origin, and political lines. But in a way that's far better than any UN proposal. Far better than any sort of pie-in-the-sky dream of, of a progressive state for unity. Far better than elections and money and social movements. No, this sort of unity is called for among Christ's church. And it's one where we display Christ's greatness to the people of the world. It's not about individuality we think of here in our country. No, instead this is one where we display our citizenship together. It's not about a cause or a group, but about a kingdom that will come in eternity. A kingdom that will never be shaken. That's why our unity in Christ matters. That's what we're after. That's what Paul is pointing towards here with Philemon. I feel like that's bigger, that's wider, that's greater, that's better what we might see as the low-hanging fruit of, of institutions and societies in our society. We do need to change. That's the battle. But Paul wants more. So, so 
secrecy, how do your thoughts and actions toward other people reflect this Christian life? And does a watching world see this kind of unity as they see Christ? Or are Christians just as divided, just as yelling and shouting about the problems as every other sect of Christians in the world? How can we show our neighbors a portrait of Christ's love in our lives? What step can we take this very day to show more for Christ as his people? This is not what anyone else can see. No one else can offer this. Only Christ can bring about this kind of unity. Let's go to the altar. What was the first call that Paul gave the first way that he is envisioning going to do something else there, and he finds it starting in verse 17. He writes, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Much better. I want some benefit and express my thanks to Christ. So not only is he wanting a certain response, now Paul is offering repayment. What's the second way that Paul wants to step in? It's not just, hey, Philemon, here's, here's how the gospel applies to this situation. Here's what I'm, I'm expecting God to do in you and in your life. What does Paul say? And I'm going to do everything possible to help make that happen. So Paul steps in with his money. Paul's willing to put his own money on the line if that will help matters. Because if there was some sort of economic issue or if Philemon stole something when he left or, or just whatever it may be, Paul's willing to say, hey, yeah, I might be the, the third party in this, but it's not just me and Onesimus, it's me and how I can help as well. He rightly sees money as a tool, not as the goal. And that's the challenge. Because sometimes we Christians are known more for our economic policies than our faith, more for how frugal we can be than for our faith. And Paul doesn't owe either of these guys anything. But if he can give some of his money bring about this sort of gospel picture, this reconciliation, he says, yeah, I'll do it. Of course, it's a tool. I'm happy to do it for you. Are we happy to do that? And happy to do it for situations that don't involve us personally? Are we willing to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to the gospel? Will you give the things that you know 
so-called Black Friday Eve. Everything's on sale. We're in the third economic climate, and every company is desperate for you to spend more money. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying you can't take advantage of a good deal or have gifts for Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, much as we're still not on sales, are we thinking, God, how can we use this money that God has given us to see the conflicts of sorcery that are going on in the world? What about me? close with the capstone of this entire letter. We find it starting in verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I'm saying. At the same time, prepare guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. I Pastor, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, send greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I think if you would Google what's the point of Paul's letter to Sardis, you're going to get a lot of summaries about um, slavery or indentured servitude or, or trying to change Roman culture or there, I want to give a different answer to that. It's one that we've seen at the beginning of the letter, here at the end of the letter. It's one that is the entire bedrock of what Paul is asking and praying and putting his own money on the line for with Philemon and Onesimus. What's the letter to Philemon about? It's about relationships. Relationships in He cares about people. He values relationships. And as I mentioned earlier, he's excited and confident to see what God's going to do with not this problem, but this opportunity to these two dear beloved brothers. And you can sense the, the warmth, can't you, in how he once more commends Philemon and how he looks forward to seeing them face to face. Could there be a better way to end this letter? than to give these very simple yet practical examples of how the gospel has been advanced. Make these greetings to my friends and fellow ministry workers. Grace from the Lord Christ be with you. I want us to increasingly be the kind of radical church where we value one another as Christ values Perfectly, yes. And I'll, I will raise my hand for you. Right? This side of heaven, you're not going to get that perfectly perfect. But is that a goal we can aim at? Strive for? Ask the Lord. Cry out to Him to guide us. Give us instructions. Actually, Paul's letter gives me a lot of confidence that I can. And so I would invite you, as we join together in prayer, let's increasingly make this a reality of how we see each other and then how we can extend this picture of how God gospel changes us so that they can see how it will change them.
news about something that's true, but every bit that Christian is. Not just something good apart from truth, that doesn't include us, that doesn't have hope, but no, instead together, that there is hope for sinful people like us, that here in Portland, that there is hope not only to to save us and redeem us, but also to change us. That we would reflect increasingly in steps like Jeremy's in our lives what Jesus has done for us and offers to us. Father, would you make that true of us this transformation first for anyone who doesn't know Christ who's having a first experience of you that they would experience it right here with us love first in our best possible way with acceptance with faith in the gladness in Jesus and then Lord for those who do not just for someday when we are called into glory, but that it, it changes our lives even now, that it gives us joy in a joyless world, that it makes us light in an eternal place. Would you give us a genuine love for one another now, not because we agree on everything, but because we agree on the most important watching world may not agree, they may despise us, but they should not even know that we are loved by you. Father, work that transformation in us in not only as individuals, but also as a community. Thank you for this first communion.